Well, we are going to continue our series on the parables of Christ. We're probably going to stay in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, for a little bit. There are a bunch of parables in there. We may go from one book to another in a parallel passage to try to figure out in a more panoramic view what what Jesus was trying to say. But we're going to start today in Matthew chapter 13 and look at verses 24 through 30 and then 36 through 43. Matthew 13, 24 through 30 and 36 through 43. The title of this message is The Parables of Christ, The Tares, Guarding and Harvesting God's Field. Guarding and Harvesting God's Field. Verse 24 of Matthew 13. Jesus presented to them another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while sleeping, but while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and they went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Verse 28. And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go gather them up? But he said, No, for a while you are, get, for a while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in time, and in, in, in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barns. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Verse 40. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears... Let him hear. Lord, help us as we study. Jesus is doing all he can to try to help people understand what the kingdom looks like and what it feels like. And in this passage, he's not specifically talking about the church, talking about the kingdom. Now, the kingdom and the church can be used sometimes synonymously, but for the most part, they're not the same. The kingdom is much broader than the church. The church is probably God's best expression of the kingdom, at least it's supposed to be, because you've got a concentrated group of people that agree upon the same principles as found in Scripture, God's priorities, with government that allows them to progress together as one voice and one movement. It is supposed to be God's best expression of what kingdom looks like in family and in mission, but it is not the entirety of the kingdom. The kingdom is to have its its place in every level of of whatever man does. So the kingdom in government, the kingdom in education, the kingdom supposed to be in athletics, in the arts, economics, 
The principles of the kingdom are to guide everything in the world. In fact, God said, as Moses was trying to figure out how to bring redemption to a group of people that are really messed up in the valley when he was on the mountain, and he was talking with God about what it meant to forgive them, he said, I'm going I'm to forgive these folk, and I'm going to do as you said, and I'm going to start over with with my heart and not just with you. God was going to wipe out all the people, started with Moses. Moses said, no, no, no. They'll say you were able to bring them out, but not able to bring them in. And so it seemed as if God was persuaded by Moses' plea, though I think it was a moment where God tested Moses because Moses was not the most patient man on the planet. He had some issues with respect to anger and taking things into his own hands. And God was saying, have you changed? And sure enough, here we see a pastor, shepherd heart coming out of Moses that cared for the people rather than judging them. And so Moses was interceding on behalf of the people. And he said, I want you to know, I'm going to forgive them. And, but, but please understand this, that my glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Even though these folk didn't know what they were doing or how to do it, and they're probably going to be disobedient from this time on. They are not going to hinder my purpose. That I'm going to cover this planet with my goodness so that there is no space between my goodness. Seamless. So God's intent regarding his kingdom is to have it be every place. Now that does not mean the church government is every place. That means it is principles of the kingdom which best serve humanity. The principles of the kingdom are those which best serve humanity. The principles of the kingdom don't, they don't involve selfishness. They involve selflessness. It's always giving your life for the benefit of somebody else. It's caring for somebody beyond your own needs. It's preferring somebody else's things more than you want your own. It's giving your life away so that somebody else might live. It's practicing love every place. The, 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 the principles of the kingdom help people the most out of any other form of religion in the world. Because it's God's order to help man. And he wants his kingdom to expand every place. Not church, kingdom. But the problem is, it doesn't seem that God can get only his kingdom represented. That though the planet is his, it doesn't look like it's all his. Because he's got some mixture in there. Whereby there are people who say, oh, I love Jesus and I manifest that in my workplace. Now, having said that, I'm not talking about being stupid and obnoxious. I'm talking about being relevant and kind so that nobody has to jump over you or navigate around you to find God. That they can actually find you, find him through you. That's how you do this thing. And, and, and after they find him through you, they want you to stay more, not leave takes wisdom and understanding to be able to navigate around that in an, in an occupational environment. But it's possible because God wants to give you that wisdom because he cares about all the people who work with you. It's not about just getting a check and providing for your own. You are there planted by Almighty God. You are a seed. You are a son of the kingdom planted in that field. Do something good. Make the planet better. That's what we are here for. Oh, listen, I know you want to get to heaven at some point, but you don't want to be planted there now, do you? I mean, God could plant you there now. But the point he, he, the reason he left you is that he wants you to make the planet better. The more people who obey him 
in every environment, whether it be their home, their workplace, or in church. The more people who obey him, the more people see him in them. And the more they want to be like him because all God does is bless folk. He just keeps blessing folk, people who aren't even deserving of it. And everybody can think of somebody he's blessing that not, not very deserving, can't you? Well, I want you to know the person sitting next to you is thinking about you. We're all messed up. And evidence of his kindness and mercy are we. That he blesses us in spite of ourselves, not because. The world is just full of mixtures. Not, not everybody's certain. Which brings us to this parable that, that Jesus uses to try to explain the condition of the world. It was a landowner and he sowed, sowed good seed in there, wheat. And, and all of a sudden, something happened. The servants came to him and said, wait a minute, there are tares in here. And I want to talk to you about four things. One, the intentionality of sowers. Two, the inquiry of man. Three, the impetuous behavior of mankind once they realize that tares are there. And four, the informed strategy that best fits the condition of the planet. Let's talk about the intentionality of the sowers. God is intentional because he cares about the planet and he wants to to plant people in the right spot who can best benefit other folks. We're left here for his purposes to serve humanity. That's why we are here. So he plants us. But there's an enemy who realizes that there's fertile soil and I can make stuff grow just like God. I can plant stuff in that soil. And this enemy, the devil, Jesus says it is the, the, the primary enemy who sowed is the devil. And he's doing everything he possibly can to stop the progress of the kingdom by planting his people in place of or next to those who are sons of light. The devil doesn't like you. He doesn't like anything you're doing. And even if you're not doing all right, he hates you anyway. Because you remind him too much of God. And he can't get to God, so he's going to take out what looks like he hates you. He has no good intent for you. He wants you destroyed because you remind him too much of his maker. And so you got this duality growing together. And he's going to do everything he can to try to convince you that it's not a good idea to be who God created you to be. And he's going to try to invade your environment with all of his ideas and all of his people to discourage you in your purpose. So that you don't even even want to live the way you're supposed to live and don't want to think the way you're supposed to think. Things grow up together. And the natural response of the intentionality of sowing both on the part of God and on the part of the devil, the natural response of the person who is sown by God is to look at the wickedness realizing that God owns everything and say this, why don't you just deal with those jokers? I mean, take them out. You are God. Fix this. The inquiry of man. Didn't you sow good seed? It's not like man in this thing, as Jesus is telling the story, it's not like man said, huh, we know our, 
we know the landowner sowed good seed. How did the tares get in there? Mm-mm. They questioned what the master did. Did not you sow good seed in your field? How then are the tares there? And this isn't a new question. Everybody asks, how in the world, if God is so good, is there evil here? If God is omnibeneficent, all-loving, if he's all-wise, omniscient, if he's, if he's omnipresent every place at once, and if he's omnipotent, all-powerful, how can evil exist? Because if he's all of those, he must be off the job. He must be neglectful to allow evil to continue in this world. He can fix it. Why doesn't he? Now, either he's not all-powerful and therefore can't fix it, or he is and just won't. Either way, our God is not what he says he is. Now, that's what people say. They question. Wait a minute. What happened here? It's your field. Why didn't you control what was put in it? And we, we, we need to be very careful when we begin to question God. Nothing wrong with asking questions, but a lot wrong with questioning. Especially on this issue of good and evil. There's a study in theology called theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Theodicy. It's a study of why in the world there is evil when God is so good. Why in the world there is evil when God is so good. And it's very complicated, but we want to make it real simple. And we just want God to get rid of the evil. If you are so good, fix it. If you're all powerful, use your power and make it right. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were having this discussion with me. And they didn't know I was a pastor. I was just a guy. If God is so good, why in the world is evil here? Can he just do something about that? I said, well, yeah, yeah, he can. Um, what, 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 what would you like him to do? And he was talking about all the evil in the world. He said, eradicate every bit of it. That's a great idea. Get, get rid of evil in the world. That'd be great. But, but I need to ask you something about your, your desire. Are, are, not trying to pry, but are you faithful to your wife? What's that got to do with it? Uh, uh, well, well, maybe that's the wrong question. Have you ever lied? Why are you asking me these questions? Well, I'm, I'm just saying, if you want God to get rid of all the evil, he, he might need to start with you. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, you said all evil. Well, no, no, no. I'm talking about the evil that's evil. The real bad evil. The bad people out there. Oh, you want to be the determiner of which evil needs to be gotten rid of. Huh. Well, okay, let, let's think. What if your wife wants to be the determiner of which evil is gotten rid of? Whose prayer does God listen to? Uh, I don't know. You know those people that are really doing bad. What is bad? And why do you get to be the determiner of how bad bad is to be gotten? Before God, sin is sin. It's all horrible. It's all horrible, every bit of it. Adam didn't kill nobody, but he became homeless because he ate a piece of fruit. Rebellion and disobedience is terrible, offensive to Almighty God, and deserving of punishment. 
you cannot be the determiner of where God draws a line because you are one of the people that need to be judged. The only one who can is the one who has never done it. And this is why God gets the privilege of deciding where the line is drawn. And rather than you looking at what he, what he doesn't do, what you think he doesn't do, how derelict he is, why don't you look at how merciful he has been to you? Maybe, maybe God doesn't judge all of humanity because he cares about you. Maybe he's just waiting for the lights to come on. And he's willing to be confused as somebody who is neglectful with respect to justice because his mercy is triumphing in everybody's life. And remember, the person that you want judged is probably praying that you get the same thing. Rather than impugning his character for what he's not doing, worship for what he has done. And before we begin to accuse him of wrongdoing, Remember, he's the one who's been trying to fix it from the beginning. He sent his son to die. How do you impugn the integrity of somebody who gave more than anybody else to fix it? You can't call him wrong. All you can do is call him right every day in worship. And you may not like the standards by which he decides to judge and who he decides to fix and when he decides to bring down the hammer. You may not like it, but every day you need to lift your hands and say, at least he didn't do it on me. He lets wheat and tares grow up together because he's merciful, not because he's neglectful. And every time we begin to judge him, we reveal our unthankfulness, our ungratefulness our pitiful attitudes, and our short-sightedness for how merciful he is to let you breathe. I am not mad that God doesn't do more. I'm surprised that he's done what he's done. I'm shocked that I'm blessed. If I never got another thing, I'd worship if I became Job. If he took everything away from me, I'm already more blessed than I deserve. He's treated me so much better than I should be treated. The definition of mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. If your definition of mercy is something different, then you can't receive it very well. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. What I deserved was death. He didn't give it to me. So I'm grateful every day. See, it makes a brother get up and not be mad that he doesn't have a raise or a supervisor is not happy with him today, has overlooked his talents and gifts, doesn't, doesn't realize how beneficial he is to the company, husband doesn't love you the way you want, kids don't respect you the way you want, you just get up one day and you say, well, I ain't going to hell. I ain't going to hell. It's a good day. It's a good day. I ain't going to hell. I ain't going to hell. I'm not going to hell. I may not get anything else I want, but I've been delivered from my judgment. Thanks be to God. He lets wheat and tares grow up together. And he deals with the inquiry of man by sometimes being silent and letting man go to the end of his own thoughts and sometimes being judged by them, not him, by them. I beg you, listen to what I'm saying. And let the rewiring in your brain and soul take place so that you worship every day rather than become mad at him for what he's not doing for you. 
the impetuous nature of people. Take it out. Take it out now. Deal with these. Well, you got to know something about why the master said, let them grow together. Tares are of the same family as wheat. They're both grasses. And tares look almost exactly the same. Only the most experienced botanist would understand the difference between the two in their immature stages. It says specifically that when the wheat came to fruition, the tares became evident also. And that's only when the tares become evident. Tares are actually something different than wheat. In fact, they produce a seed that's actually noxious and poisonous. And they grow together. But it's only at the time of the harvest where you begin to see the distinction between the tares and the wheat. The wheat grows, and if you've ever seen a wheat field at the time of harvest, the very top of the, gra- uh, of the stalk begins to bow. Hold on to that thought for a minute. The stalk of the tear never bows. Stays straight up. When it grows up, it never bows. But the wheat begins to bow. And only then can you begin to see the difference between the tares and the wheat. Is that the tares begin to bow. It takes anywhere from two to three weeks for them to completely bow. Now once you see... And, and, and two to three weeks to completely bow, and the, the fruit become ready to, to pick. Once you see the bowing, the sense is, okay, I can tell the difference now. Let's go get the tares. The problem is this. They've been growing together for four months, and the root system's intertwined. You pull up the tares, you damage the wheat, and ruin your harvest. It won't have the necessary nutrients drawn from the soil because its root system will be destroyed to be able to support what it needs to actually produce the grain to become as ripe ripe as it should be so you can harvest it and make it useful. So you have to wait until the wheat completely bows. You got to wait till the wheat completely gives up completely. You got to wait. And once the wheat has completely bowed, then you come and harvest the wheat and pull out the tares. God, God is, is, we, our society is getting darker. The tares are growing really well. They're growing beautifully. And it's getting worse and worse. When I was growing up, we could pray in school, public school. Yes. We even said the Pledge of Allegiance every day. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One, some of y'all don't even know what I'm saying. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I haven't prayed that in 40, prayed, said that in 40 years. But I remember it because it was ingrained in me when I was six. My mama has spanked more children than just us. <laughs> Proudly so, and commended when she did it. She was a school teacher. School teacher. And, 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 and corporal punishment was the order of the day. You didn't have kids mouthing off except once, once. Not in my mama's class. We'd have teacher work days at our, our school. We lived out in the suburbs. My mother worked in the inner city. 
And so when we had teacher work days in my school, she'd have to drive us with her because there was nobody to watch us. So we go to school with her. And I sat in the back and I had to be in school on my day off. <laughs> but I had to sit there and I saw mama teach. And I saw one kid that was acting up. And I said to myself, boy, you better stop. I know that woman. You better stop. You better stop. He didn't stop. And mama had, mama had, you know the little ledge in front of the chalkboard? She had a paddle that had little holes in it, just like they do in the frats. And that paddle was prominent. Every child could look at it and say, I think I need to obey, except this knucklehead. Acted up. After a minute, mama said, enough, come on. Took her in the little education closet. Wore him out for 30 seconds. You could hear screaming, hollering, all kind of stuff. And the beautiful sound of rhythmic slapping. Right on that boy's behind. He came out a more contrite Tigger, I'll tell you that. More humble Tigger. You know Tigger? Y'all don't know nothing about Winnie the Pooh either. Y'all are a messed up generation, I'm telling you. You are a messed up generation. Don't know nothing about Winnie the Pooh. You can't do anything like that in school today. You can't pray. You can't talk about God. We're redefining terms in our society. It's dangerous when you redefine terms, especially core terms to humanity. Very dangerous. In Nazi Germany, they redefined what a person was. They called Jews non-persons, which made it easier for them to persecute them. In every society that's had slaves, they've redefined them as property, not people, because it helps them do what they need to do in captivating them. When you redefine the term marriage, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You're going to redefine what a husband is. You're going to redefine what a wife is. You take biblical terms and redefine it. It's not good. Now, I'm a man who has very close people. People that, that, I'm going to leave it at this. People that I love who practice homosexuality. Care about them deeply. Pray for them. They, They won't find anybody who loves them more. They won't find anybody. I accept them. Don't approve but I accept them. I love them. And I'm not trying to get them to change so I'm more comfortable. I just want them to serve God. And I've seen people who live the homosexual lifestyle become non-homosexual. Seen it. It's amazing. And God does some amazing things through the lives of individuals. Amazing. When you take a term like marriage and you redefine it, oh my goodness, it messes up everything. Now, I'm not going to fight against people if they want the privileges of everything that marriage marriage has and not take the term. I'm not going to fight. Whatever America allows. But you can't take the term marriage and just redefine it and say what you want it to be. I realize also that our society has made it a civic term and that you can actually be married without going through a religious ceremony. But where do the civic authorities get the term? Except from us. And even they have respected it for centuries as being that which should be between a man and a woman. Darkness is growing. And there are going to be attempts to try to do everything possible, everything possible, to stamp out the light of the Word of God. Now, the privilege is this, that we get to be the ones who are persecuted. You have to remember that all, most of our Christian history is that which has been defined by being beat up by everybody else. 
Most religions say, I will sacrifice you for my agenda. We say, we'll lay down our lives for you. We get the privilege of dying on other people's behalf. And I will die for my community. Lay down my life, but I will stand for truth. The darkness is growing regularly. Growing regularly. But Jesus said this, that when harvest time comes, something about the sons of the, of the kingdom, what does he say? They will shine brightly like the sun. Our responsibility is not to determine when the tares are taken up. Our responsibility is to continue to grow and love people and care for people and be merciful and be kind to be aggressive in our attempts at trying to show them the love of God without being self-righteous or judgmental. That's our job. Yes. And as we go through that process, we will, we will take it on the chin. We will find ourselves identifying with Paul and the entire body of Christ of antiquity that got the privilege of laying down their lives for those they loved. Because they had already taken up their cross to follow Jesus and admit later that they may have to take it up literally. We've taken up our cross, we are following him, and someday it may cost us our lives. That which I have already given, I will be privileged to inconvenience and give again. Our responsibility is to grow. And as we grow, God allows us to shine not only as the S-U-N, but as the S-O-N. Be Jesus to a community that desperately needs it. Let's pray.